well. Eric, thanks for being on the show. Sakas, is that so? It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Sakas. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Fantastic. Well, um, Eric, I know that you operate in multiple different capacities and we've known each other for a few years. But, uh, you know, as an introduction to yourself, you're the Director of Corporate Accountability at the Hispanic Association on Corporate Responsibility. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, for the audience to get to know you a little bit more, what exactly does that role entail and how did you kind of get into that? Sure, sure. So, you know, how I got into that will explain a lot because it wasn't a straight and narrow path. So uh, I'll go back to coming to D.C. So I came to D.C. to... Um, intern at the Obama White House. I was at the Office of Management and Budget. And being in DC during that time, it was a very exciting time for me. I fell in love with the city and I wanted to stay here. So I did, and I almost got a job at the OMB. If it wasn't for Congress is cutting the budget of the OMB, I would have gotten a job and my life would be very different. But it didn't. And I still wanted to stay in DC. I, I I felt a passion about staying here. So I wanted to figure out how to do it. Now, at this point in my life, I had just finished my internship at the White House. I had just also finished my master's degree. So I, was, uh, I had my master's degree. And I also had just finished um, my Fulbright grant. I was uh, a year in Hungary studying discrimination of the Roma there. And so I had all these things uh, under me and, and, and several years of, of work experience. I'd worked for years in the law firm in Harlem and had done other things in my life. But in order to do what I wanted to do, in order to stay in the city, I took a job as a receptionist. Something that a lot of people I think would have not done because, you know, I, I'd done all these things. How could I just be a receptionist? But yeah. my desire to stay in the city was more than, than my desire to not, you know, to, my pride to not sit in, in a receptionist desk. Yeah. I mean, going from Fulbright scholar to receptionist, that must have been a tough one to swallow. It was in a way, but it gave me time. So one of the, you know, I got to appreciate the job. I mean, I always appreciated jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, that we that many people take for granted, you know, receptionists and other things like that. My mom is a home health aide. My dad was a was a handyman. So I've I've grown up um, appreciating these these roles and responsibilities and the impact that they have in our everyday lives. And so I, I I didn't see it as a shameful thing, but I also got to know the role itself and and how to be good at something that I wasn't uh, trained for or 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 wasn't part of my my background. But what it also gave me was time. Um, it was, it took me a, a fairly uh, short amount of time to get used to the role. And I, and I was able to create some space and time for myself to, to think about things. And that's where I came up with the idea to start my business, um, Globe Surf Consulting, um, which then after having been, spent some time at, at my receptionist job, I, I got another job. And then shortly, uh, fairly shortly after that, I uh, got a contract, a one-year contract with a nonprofit locally where I dealt with um, interstate issues on discrimination uh, here in the DC area. Now, and it was after finishing that one-year contract that I finally made it to HACER, so um, the uh, Hispanic Association on Corporate Responsibility. And that was as a, as a result of them looking for a contractor to help them with a survey that they administer annually called the Corporate Inclusion Index. That survey is administered to Fortune 500 companies and HACER corporate members um, to measure how th these companies are doing with respect to the inclusion of Hispanics in a variety of areas, mainly in their employment practices, procurement practices, philanthropic efforts, and their governance structure. Um, and so I came on board to help them with that. 
And then over the years, they offered me a job and it was a, um, a good offer. So I took it and um, I, I become responsible for the survey. So now I, I am responsible for the administration of the survey, the analysis of the data, the reporting of the results to both the participants and the general public in our annual uh, CII report. And um, I do uh, several other projects. Uh, one of the things that is part of my responsibility as a director of corporate accountability as well is to talk to companies about what it is that they need to do in order to bridge that gap with um, being inclusive in these four areas that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, it's, it's quite, quite interesting to hear that because when you hear of discrimination or accountability, diversity and inclusion, any of those kinds of things, your mind typically goes to the African-American experience, right? Because there it's a bit more blatant. And I know you guys can probably hear what sounds like gunshots in the background, but that's because people are celebrating the election. <laughs> yes, it's all because of Saka's birthday. It's Saka's birthday, so. <laughs> Maybe it's that birthday or the election, which I know will come into. Um, why do you think people don't typically think of the Hispanic experience when it comes to uh, discrimination and DNI and things like that? You know, I think, well, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of things going on here, right? So uh, it's, there are historical reasons for why the African-American experience is particularly tied to diversity and inclusion and discrimination in this country. It is so tightly knit. It is part of the fabric, the foundational fabric of the country. Um, when the founders came to the country, they came with slaves. And so the, as a result of that, um, and years, hundreds of years of, this, of, of just abuse and, and, and injustice, um, it has become part of the story of how to overcome this. Um, certainly that is also, there's also a story of discrimination and a, and a separate history for uh, Hispanics or, 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 Latinx, or the Latinx community um, in their own countries of origin. Um, but as as a, as the uh, uh, participants in this country, our history is a bit later um, with the annexation of Western lands and Southern lands um, in this country, and and then um, as a result of migration um, uh, in subsequent years. But there's a lot of similarities. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, similarities in, this, in the ways that we are discriminated against, in the way that uh, we are kept from. Um, uh, enjoying the same kinds of privileges that others are that can enjoy and have access to. And so that's why organizations like ours exist in order to help make sure that there is a level playing field for everyone in these um, in these companies in this country. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I think it might be difficult as well is because Hispanic is a relatively broad or overarching term and there there's some you know, Hispanics that can practically be Caucasian in terms of culture, name, in terms of appearance as well. And then you get the other side of the Hispanic range. So it really does fluctuate. And uh, I think because of that diversity within that spectrum, maybe it's a bit harder to pinpoint as opposed to like black people's like, you know, clearly visible. There's a sort of singular kind of identity amongst them. Would you say right. that's one of the reasons why it's a bit tougher to, or, or to, to police or one of the reasons why people haven't put their sort of thumb on this particular issue or not really? Yeah, no, it's, and it's, it's, it's very complicated. So you're absolutely right. Hispanic is not a race, it's an ethnicity. And so within a Hispanic ethnicity, we have all races. I mean, we have Hispanic, Hispanic, Asian, Hispanic, Afro, Afro Latinos and Afro, African, Afro uh, Hispanics. Um, we have Hispanics from all backgrounds and, and racial, racial diverse. And we have a lot of racial diversity in our, in our, ethnicity. Um, and so, yes, we, we have not only the issues that 
are shared by Hispanics, but also sub issues that are shared with other races. So um, the Afro Latino community shares a lot of in common with the African American community and, and shares a lot of the same discriminations, both within this country and historically from from their from their countries of origin, because there is a history of a slavery in um, the Spanish colonies as well. So there's a lot of similarities there. And you know, one of the things that the Hispanic community has been trying to deal with for many years and will um, I think will have to deal with, especially going forward um, after all the events of this year, is how to not treat the Hispanic community as a monolith and how to take into account all the differences uh, between the different Hispanic groups and the difficulties that they're having in becoming successful, becoming um, having equality and justice um, for them in each of those communities as well. Yeah, one of the things I've always struggled with was you don't want your identity to become who you are or to use your identity as a lens by which you view the entire world right because on one hand you want the best ideas to win or you know a corporation should be meritocratic whereby the best person wins but then you know that the reality of the world is you know if you're black and your name sounds a certain way or if you're hispanic and things like that um you have a lower propensity of getting that job or to be viewed as a CEO, you know, people be like, whoa, your CEO is black. It's kind of like awkward or, you know, they don't expect that. So you're kind of forced to, I don't say hide behind, but use your group identity as well uh, in order to push for some agenda within a corporation as either an employee resource group or something like that. Or, you know, you're, you're kind of forced to go into it because we don't live in a world that is truly fair and free and things like that. Um, so I actually wanted to touch a bit more on that. Do you ever find that personally from yourself that you struggle with that? What's the right thing to do versus the reality of the world? Um, yes. So there, there are there are several things going on with with the statement you've just made, uh, Saka, and that's that. Um, yes, there we we would love to live in a world where. Um, you took everything at face value, right? That, that everything was worth exactly what it was intended to be worth and every, everyone would take, you know, uh, uh, will be presented with something and, and just say, you know, oh, this is worth this much because, you know, that's, that's exactly what is being presented to me. But um, the, the reality is that because, you know, we're human um, and we have innate and internal biases, those things don't play out that way. Um, and one of the one of the problems with uh, incorporating uh, minority groups into practices, into events and, and programs um, among companies and other organizations, not just companies, um, is that uh, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fight between two, two opposing sides. One is that the companies um, and organizations that exist in the world and that we all know and love have become that way because they have systems that they've put in place in order to become uh, successful. Um, and they have uh, uh, norms on how to do things in order to keep themselves that way. And on the other side is change in order to re remain relevant, in order to um, continue to succeed in the, in the world of the future, you will need to change and adapt. Now, in order to mar marry those two worlds, you'll have to accept that some things that you were doing um, may need to change. And some of the ways that you were making decisions may need to change. Um, one, of, one of the toughest uh, practices that uh, companies tend to struggle with in terms of making those changes is 
the norms of, of practices uh, with respect to other people. Um, who do we hire? Where do we hire from? I mean, even very simply, you know, hiring from some of the best schools in the world, from your Harvards and Oxfords and, and, other, and Cambridge and other schools like that. The, I mean, there's a very good reason why people tend to turn to those schools for talent is because talent tends to be turned out of those schools very successfully and very high rates. Um, but that's not where you tend to find diversity. Um, it's a problem. Not yet. I'm not saying that these schools are not looking to be diverse or they're not um, making those issues. Obviously, I, I know that they are. But as of yet, most most diverse groups do not graduate from these schools. And so if you're looking to diversify your employee population, if you're looking to diversify um, your interns, then you probably should look at other areas as well, black serving institutions, Hispanic serving institutions here in this country, um, Native American serving institutions and others um, as a source for where to find this talent. Um, the same goes for businesses. Um, when procurement teams look for businesses to contract with, they often rely on their networks. But the problem is that their networks have for a long time been very white, very male. And there's nothing wrong with it. I've been successful at doing that for many years. But if you really want to take diversity and inclusion seriously, you're going to have to look outside of those networks, go to the communities that you want to do businesses with that are your customers and start looking there as well. Yeah, the, the, the problem goes so far back and it's so entrenched in many different ways. As you mentioned, it goes back to education. It goes back to so many different things and it compounds. So for us to change the narrative, it's going to be you know, a huge difference and, uh, and a big undertaking as well. I remember one of the reasons why I was, I was glad that I went to, to Cal was the fact that they didn't have affirmative action. So no one could ever say, oh, he got in because he was black or something like that. You know what I mean? And uh, unfortunately, that's just the reality of the way the world is. They need to put policies to allow more diverse people to get in. But at the same time, you, you get that perception of, oh, he was only allowed in because he's a certain way. So I'm glad I don't have to deal with that psychologically going forward. Right. But, um, you know, it's, it's an issue that people face. And yeah, and that's the flip side, Saka, that what you're, what you're talking about there is stereotype threat, right? And I'll talk about my own personal experience and story about how um, I, I went through that. I mean, I, I listened to some of your earlier podcasts and there was one where you mentioned um, the fact that coming from certain cultures, there's only really a, a handful of, of uh, occupations that are acceptable by parents, right? Doctor, <laughs> engineer, for lawyer, right? For me, it was lawyer. So I was an argumentative young, young lad. And so... Um, when, when my parents were seeing that uh, growing up, they said, oh, you should be a lawyer. So that they were grooming me to be a lawyer from a very young age. And I, I was doing everything I needed to do. I, I expressed my interest in, in, in law as a young kid. Um, and I worked, uh, my first job out of college was at a law firm where I was taking all my own cases. I was very successful at it. Um, but throughout my journey, I always questioned, am I good enough to be a lawyer? You know, when I, when I came back, the reason why I did a Fulbright was because I couldn't decide if I wanted to be a lawyer or, or get a, a higher education degree in another discipline. Um, and the reason well, for that, excuse, by the way, being a Fulbright as opposed to those two, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the reason for that confusion was that I felt like I wasn't good enough to be a lawyer yet. And I never got to the point where I felt good enough to be a lawyer because 
um, there was there weren't many lawyers that looked like me, not many lawyers that came from where I came from, my, my neighborhood. And I just didn't know um, what it needed to, to, to make it there. And also I, know, I saw how lawyers of color were being treated by um, other lawyers. And I didn't want to experience that. I wanted to be so good that they, there was no way that someone could say something about me, about being here only because I was a certain color or from a certain background. And so that, that hindered me from taking that path. I don't regret the path that I'm on now, but, I'm, but that is what keeps some of us from pursuing our dreams and passions, whether that be businesses or, or professions, which we are passionate about, but um, are a little bit afraid of to, to partake in. Um, and so, you know, that was, that was part of my story. And I think it comes back to, you know, some of the things, some of the disadvantages that we, some of us have growing up. When I was um, looking to apply to colleges, uh, my social, my, my guidance counselor who was helping me through the process told me that I shouldn't apply to four-year colleges because they're harder to get into. Um, and that really had an effect on me. I mean, I didn't apply to some of the colleges that I would have applied to um, had I not heard that. And um, what I did wind up doing was applying to some anyway, and I got, you know, a full ride to, to Hofstra University where I graduated from in Long Island. Um, and so, you know, but that, that no, no, matter, no matter how successful I, I have been since then, those words stayed with me. Am I good enough? I've always been um, following me around throughout my professional career. And I see that. And this is one of the reasons why I'm passionate about what I do, because I see that from others. I see that from other businesses, employees, um, and people that I know. And I just uh, want to make sure that they know and that uh, the decision makers at these organizations know that these are good people. They will work for you and they will make your business more successful if you give them a chance. Yeah, I want to touch a bit more on that part where you said, you know, you weren't good enough because, um, you know, transitioning over into the sort of the corporate space. So you looked at it from a personal perspective. Was I good enough for certain things or not? And corporations must be asking themselves as well. Are we good enough? Are we doing well enough to foster or cater to the Hispanic experience or the African-American or whatever it is? So right. based on the surveys and things that you've done, what was the situation like when you actually went in there to actually analyze or you're trying to help companies? Was there anything that stood out to you like, wow, these guys are really not paying attention to it? Or uh, I'm trying to get a sense of where things were and anything that stood out to you so that they know if they're good or bad and then also where they're going or where they're heading to, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, there was a, when I first started at Hazara, there was a, a huge lack of um, measuring and, and, and keeping track of metrics. Um, so companies wanted to know what to do and, you know, what is it that I need to do in order to get more Hispanic employees? Where do I need to look? But there was no efforts, there were no efforts being made or, or very few on tracking their success. So, um, if we, for example, in a survey established a benchmark for attaining, you know, high marks for our survey for a certain percentage of employees in your company, a company can go out and recruit up to that percentage of, of go real hard and recruit up to that percentage of employees over one year in order to get that high mark. But then they don't, they don't implement any foundational practices to keep those employees. They don't keep track of all, any of their metrics on you know, how, why employees are leaving, what's the turnaround rate. Um, and that leads to uh, a, lot of, a lot of failure, in fact. And, what, and even more dangerously, what it leads to is uh, some people saying that 
well, we've tried with the Hispanic community already and we haven't been successful. And so, right. And so, you know, what we are trying to do and avoid as, as an organization helping companies through this process is say, you know, you need to establish these benchmarks internally. You need to start keeping track of this. You need to start measuring where your successes are and where your failures are for, to be frank. I mean, we don't, we no longer publish, um, company ratings in detail, because what we want to do is make companies comfortable enough to give us the data so that they can see where they're doing well, as well as where they're doing not so well. Um, so that they can make those improvements, because it's not just about celebrating the good stuff. It's also about identifying where the gaps are. And I, it, to, be, to be honest, you know, I think it's great that companies are doing some good things, but the real valuable information is where you're not doing good things because that's where the improvement lies that's where you can get better um and that's where you can get more competitive so that's that's what i do with the companies about um showing them where those gaps are showing them how they can improve and be better and where they can um leverage what they already have to continue that improvement i'm a big believer in self-interest and I think that corporates always do what's in their best interest, whatever is going to help them with profit or look better sure. from our perspective or whatever it is. Right. Um, and so I guess previously what would happen is you get the wonderful brochure that looks so diverse, but then you get the board member picture and it's not very diverse. Right. So right, right, right. trying to serve their interest to the, the cheapest, uh, most efficient means. But now is there any type of um, self-serving interests that corporates have or businesses have to actually be diverse? Now, uh, yes, there is, there is a side of serving interest, even on, on the highest levels, even in boards. Um, and I would say that if, if you're really looking into breaking into these communities, I mean, breaking in is probably a, a wrong term, but if you're really looking to establish a relationship with these communities, um, a beneficial, mutually beneficial relationship, you're going to need to understand the culture, you're going to need to understand the people, and your decision makers are going to have to have experiential knowledge about this. They're going to need to really know um, what Hispanics want in this country, what African-Americans want, what Asian-Americans want. And in order to have that, you need diversity on the board. You need diversity on the board and in the C-suite. Um, and this is one of the areas where we're still, you know, the slowest growing um, from all the other areas. Uh, you know, Hispanics are less than 1% of, of all board members. Um, in, in Fortune uh, 500 companies. Um, and also um, they're less than 1%, less than less than less than 1%, less than 1.1% of all board members are Latinas. So very, very few uh, Latinas wow. uh, from our research are, are in corporate boards. And there's a really big missed opportunity there. And I, and I take this back to um, that habit. So you know, as, as Marcus Aurelius says, what stands in the way becomes the way. So they say that they can't find the talent. And so that becomes the way. Oh, we can't oh. find talent. So we don't look. Heard that. We don't look. Um, and that's really, uh, that's really a detriment, you know, and they've, they've become very used to doing things that the way that they do. There are plenty of opportunities, not just in the board space, in the leadership space, in the talent space, but also in the small business and procurement space. There are a ton of uh, minority businesses out there who are looking for these opportunities, who love to work with a large company um, to become better at what they do. Um, 
but companies keep saying that they can't find these businesses, that they can't find businesses that can work at scale. Um, and so what one of the messages that we give our participants is that might be true now, but if you want to change that, then you need to work with the business community in order to change that. What programs do you have internally to help those businesses become more um, capable of doing business with you um, and growing to scale? Yeah, I like that. I actually want to touch a bit more on that sort of economic uh, opportunity that's part of it, because a lot of times people think it's just a kumbaya, feel good, let's do this. But there is an economic incentive, right? Not just for corporations, but for the small businesses themselves. Is Are we missing out on uh, prosperity for more people, for the corporates, for the small businesses, because we're not doing this? And have we been able to quantify it and, and anything like that? Yes, there are plenty of studies out there that do quantify the loss in opportunity, particularly in doing businesses with, with certain um, minority groups. Um, and it's, it's a loss. It's a loss. Um, and I hear companies, you know, and, and, and their, their concerns, you know, they're the, some of these businesses, they would like more, more minority businesses to be certified um, through organizations like NMSTC and others like that. Um, and that's great, but you know, they really have to understand that certification can be a hurdle for certain small businesses if you really want to get in on the ground and work with a community, very local community, very small businesses. Um, you either have to help with that process of certification or, or, or at least um, provide some mentorship to get certified or not require it because it is a hurdle. Grow, help the business grow, take the risk. Um, because it, while it will be difficult for companies to take on this new norm, um, uh, not doing it is, is also not really helping their, their, their goals and efforts because they do have goals. Companies, uh, at least the ones that participate in our survey have goals to increase the diversity in this area, but it has been slow um, and it has taken a long time. In fact, in the 10 years or more of, of, of the existence of the Corporate Inclusion Index, um, the numbers in procurement and in governance with respect to the board have moved the fewest. And in the case of um, governance, uh, in the 90s, we actually had a higher percentage of Hispanics represented on corporate boards than we do today. So it's gone backwards somehow. You'd have thought based on the way the world is moving, it would have gotten better, if anything. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you would think, but actually in this, in this particular uh, case, it hasn't. Um, and so what are, what are companies doing to help improve that um, is, some, is some of the, what we do in terms of research at our organization. Yeah. You touched on something which was pretty interesting as well, which was the fact that you need to be able to take a risk um, and sort of almost let some of the businesses uh, in these minority communities evolve and mature to be able to scale, to be able to meet the certification requirements, all that kind of stuff. And so if you go there, I understand why the corporate could say, oh, there's no availability of minority procurement uh, you know, facilitators or no particular employees because they don't have the education. But I think that's that, that word that you use, which was you gotta be very patient. You got to be willing to take a risk. You have to do that in order for us to get to that level. And no one's comfortable with the risk. Everyone wants to have the lowest amount of risk uh, for the maximum right. amount of returns, right? Um, I guess one way to frame that conversation is, look, it's a higher risk, but there's also higher returns because you have 
a new market that you can go after. I remember reading something about the Hispanic market being, um, you know, the fastest growing or the largest in the U.S. Um, and there was another statistic in The Economist. I don't know if it's still true today, but America trades more with Mexico than it does with China. And you start to think of it and you're like, whoa, are you serious? I look at, I mean, that's amazing. That's astounding, really. But we don't look at it in those terms, you know, it's always like, oh, it's too risky and, and, and it might not necessarily match up with reality, you know? Right, right. Now, actually, one of the one of the uh, data points is that the uh, Hispanic market in this country, just just the U.S., so not looking at any any other countries, w- if it were to stand on its own, um, would be the fifth largest economy in the world. And so, um, there is a lot of opportunity here. There's a lot of o- opportunity for companies, opportunity for for businesses, and opportunities for for talent um, to grow with this country. Because what we're looking for. We're not looking, and as as with any other culture or group, we're not looking for exceptional uh, uh, treatment. What we're looking for is equal treatment. Um, and so, if we were given that equal chance, imagine what what of a difference we would make um, in all these areas. I need and to it's, open up a uh, a taco facility and start selling tamales or something like that because if that's how big <laughs> the hispanic community is one trillion or the fifth largest economy that's crazy that's huge yeah. people don't know that information no right right and that's that's the argument we take to companies is like would you invest on in the big the fifth largest company uh economy in the world would you invest on and the one of the quickest largest quickest growing economies in the world and you know we give them a couple other points and usually the answer is yeah we would love to invest in that and that's we would tell them that's the Hispanic market. That's what you're looking at. That's why it matters what you do here um, with our community um, and uh, and to our community. It, it, it really matters in respect to where, where are you going to be the next couple of years because we're only growing. Um, the diversity of the country is only growing and we're, we're going to continue to have this very large impact on the economy. It's so interesting as well, looking at it from a U.S. versus European perspective, because I'm based in the U.K. here and London is one of the most diverse you know, cities in the world. And over here, there, there are no sort of affirmative action or, you know, we're going to try and help out this minority community. And none, at least until the whole Black Lives Matter movement started, then it became like, oh, we need to do more about diversity and inclusion. But uh, maybe it's because of the geographic proximity of the U.K. and how much of a melting pot it is in some regards, but I don't know if that holds water because America is also a melting pot, or maybe it's because of the history of discrimination here is maybe not as blatant as in America where it was a lot more prevalent. Uh, whether that's just good marketing, I don't know, but uh, it's, it's such an interesting thing looking at it from a European, here it's almost more nationalistic than, than race driven, if that makes sense. So it's more like yeah. previously it was like Spanish and then German and then that kind of thing as opposed to the race. Um, issue. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you've observed a difference between European companies or the way it works here versus the US or, or are you strictly only US? No, we do have some European companies participate on the survey, but we only uh, evaluate their uh, US based operations. Um, so so that's that's the difference. But I do I have heard those comments being made about uh, the UK uh, uh, experience and, and the way it treats diversity and inclusion. Also, I've heard about France as well. It's more about nationalism. It's about, you know, you're French if you're French. Doesn't matter yeah. where you're from. Yeah. But you know, I French football team. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um I I do I do think that this this exists everywhere, I think. Mm-hmm. Everywhere that there there is a difference between two people, um, mm-hmm. 
particularly uh, socioeconomically, if there is a very large percentage of one group of person and a lower end of the socioeconomic scale and others in the other end, mm. there, there exists these issues. And what the difference is in treatment, I think, is awareness. And as you said, when Black Lives Matter came and the and UK uh, businesses and other organizations became aware of it, then this became an issue that they would address because they, they were made aware of it. Um, and I think that Black Lives Matter has made a huge difference globally in helping to bring these issues to light in, in any, in, wherever they take place. Um, and so uh, uh, I think that here in, in this country, particularly um, uh, after Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, we, we have certainly moved the needle. And, and with respect to procurement, which, which we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, um, uh, after Black Lives Matter, companies started to wake up to the fact that there are these African-American businesses that they could do, that they could be um, contracting with and partnering with um, to supply products and do other services when they've been there the whole time. Um, but now that they're aware of them, they're they're doing. They're making all these efforts to do business with them, which is great. But I think that uh, what needs to be the lesson out of this is that there are opportunities with all communities, and we need. They need to, and they should leverage those opportunities wherever possible. Yeah, I want to stay on this topic of opportunities because uh, I'm sure the audience must be thinking, "All right, everyone keeps talking about these opportunities, but no one's ever hitting up my LinkedIn, or uh, you know, no one's reaching <laughs> yeah. out to my business, or things like that." Is it a matter like? Are people not seeing these opportunities because they just don't know what portal to go to or things like that? Or are they just not being reached out to on LinkedIn? How can people find these opportunities that are now coming about because it's, it's top of mind? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, we still live in a very network driven world. Um, and so if you're on LinkedIn, you're, you know, you're already on the right path. That is the right place to be in order to find additional opportunities, um, especially in this COVID driven world where we're all digital. Um, I, I think that that's one place to start. Also join groups, reach out to folks more. Um, I personally have grown my network tremendously over the past uh, eight years of being in DC. Um, when we were able to meet in person, I was through asking for, for cards. But now that we are digital, every time I go to a conference, I hear a speak, uh, speaker talk uh, and I'm very impressed with what they're saying. First thing I do is go onto LinkedIn, look them up, send them an invitation, start a conversation, see who they're connected to. I mean, it's a bit of work, but that's what it takes in order to grow your network, grow, grow your influence um, in your space. Um, and so I think the opportunities are certainly out there. People are looking for um, talent always, even uh, in, in these times. Um, uh, while some economies are doing um, poorly because of the unfortunate situation of, of the pandemic, um, let's not forget that some, of, some companies are doing very, very well as a result of that as well. Yeah. And so they're looking for talent. I mean, I can't tell you how, how much, how many opportunities there are in certain companies um, as a result of this. Uh, if you've ever ordered anything from online, just look at those uh, companies uh, that you order from the most and they're all looking for more talent um, yeah. in those spaces. Yeah. So there are, there, are there are certainly opportunities and businesses too. Um, if you're a small business and you're providing a service or a product, um, look to those who are doing very well now for those opportunities. Yeah. When I think of the, uh, the tech sector, because that's where I'm, I'm in right now. And uh, yeah, the opportunities are boundless. But the problem is that, again, 
you know, some of these communities might not necessarily have the education to fulfill these kinds of jobs. A lot of them might be machine learning or AI or, you know, uh, e-commerce and things like that, which I don't want to say requires a certain level of affluence because there, there's a relatively low barrier to entry to start an e-commerce store and things like that. But even when you think of the tech giants, right, the reason or part of the reason why the founders of these tech giants were successful is because they were either from an affluent uh, society or they were part of a racial group that didn't have those, you know, that discrimination and things like that. There's a confluence of factors that led to it. If Jeff Bezos didn't have an aunt or uncle to ask for 30 grand from, you know what I mean? That some communities might not necessarily have, would there be an Amazon? You know, if the founders of uh, Google didn't go to Stanford, which again is of a certain affluence or ethnic makeup and things like that. I know they're, they're foreign, but you know, there, there's a confluence of factors. And what scares me the most, to be frank with you, is the fact that not only are minority groups not prepared for this tech space, or they, they were, let me just say, not best suited to go into the tech space when things were really kicking off. But the problem here is that the tech space is one which is not only just growing, but it's becoming more concentrated. So it's sort of winner takes all. So, you know, Amazon, Apple, these companies are not, you know, small by any means. They are dominating society. I mean, being able to dominate the search bar, you're the portal to the internet, that's Google. I mean, that's a huge thing. There's no competitors there, right? It's, it's sort of winner takes all. And so when I think of the future industries like artificial intelligence and all those kinds of things, if these minority groups are not even in that game, they're, they're not even in the tech world, forget even the cutting edge of the tech world like AI, if they're not even in that game, then they're just not set up to be a stakeholder in that winner takes all, like when it eventually happens and that next great platform happens. So do you ever worry about this or is this something that you think we can work on or, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, then that's, that's a huge problem. I mean, you're hitting on something that is, you know, very meta because it's, it's right. It's, it's, it's right above us, right? Simmering on the surface of everything that we're dealing with. I mean, we deal day to day on person to person issues and sometimes company to company issues. Um, but above all that is, you know, where's the black Google, you know, where's the Latino Amazon? I mean, th these these things don't exist. Will they, can they ever exist now that the field has been dominated by, which is exactly what you're saying, by these, by these companies? You know, that, that is something I, I don't even know. Yes, that is something that is a concern to me. And I have thought about that. But how to even approach something like that, how to even begin that? I mean, I know that there are a lot of incubators and a lot of efforts being made to grow businesses from the ground up, um, particularly in minority communities. But, mm. um, is that enough? Um, when we have these companies that are so big um, and are able to very quickly uh, uh, consume um, companies who are smaller than them and, in, and going in the direction of their interests, exactly. then maybe not. Um, and there's there are several sides to this argument, right? So um, the first is, well, you know, we make uh, the, these companies make a fair offer to these smaller companies and buy them out. And um, they get to leverage the the resources that they've created in order to make the product that they may they have better, which then benefits everyone. And then let's not forget that these companies are also working to diversify. And so one day, hopefully soon, um, and in some in some cases, some of these companies already have uh, minority uh, representatives as their CEOs and top executives. So you know, they're in a the way that's how they you can answer this question is that you know we have. The community represented among the uh, leaders of the company, but on the other hand, um, is there can there ever be something 
um, like these companies from minority groups born out of minority communities and serving uh, with the intent of serving and representing the culture of minority communities that will be as popular as, as these entities? Um, I don't know. Only the future can tell. I mean, who would have thought uh, that any of these companies would have succeeded in year one, right? No one. So who knows what the future will hold um, in terms of what's what's the next big thing? Um, but it's going to be a, an uphill battle. Um, but that's that's the beauty of entrepreneurship. I mean, that's not a, entrepreneurship is not going to care about uh, how hard it is if it has the right product to present. Yeah, it, it reminds me of. Mm sort of this philosophical debate, which is like socialism versus capitalism. And I kind of fell in love with capitalism in its truest sense when I thought about how it's supposed to be agnostic. It's all about profit and money. And so your race doesn't really play a factor in it. So in, in a sense, it's a good system because if I'm trying to make a pencil, there's a guy called Milton Friedman and said, I need to get the lead, I need to get the rubber, I need to get the wood, I need all these players. And I really don't care whether they're brown, blue, black, orange, whatever. I just want the product so I can create another product. So it's a great system. If that system depends on your network or other things right. like that, human factors, that's when the discrimination and all those other things come into play. Um, but yeah, in, in its truest sense of the, of the word and the nature, capitalism should spread pros prosperity and opportunity for everyone, right? I mean, it should. Um, if so, I in my in my personal opinion, uh, capitalism would be a really great system if if we lived in a kind of a perfect world, if mm. everything flowed smoothly um, and there were no, none of these human issues to, to contend with. Um, and in, in most cases, even with the human issues, they tend to work themselves out in capitalism because the best ideas win, right? So if you have something that is really not serving uh, the community and that community is a uh, huge source of revenue and your competitors do, then you lose. Um, uh, but that doesn't always par play out, particularly when we're talking about things like utilities. Um, and I say like utilities because obviously utilities are what they are and they have to serve everyone equally. But there are certain things that have propped up in our world in the recent, in the past several decades, which act like utilities that everyone uses, but not everyone has access to mm. in equal ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. How much of it do you think is the responsibility of these minority groups in terms of their attitudes, in terms of their education, perception, and things like that? Because I can see it being, you know, a very relevant, uh, or at least understandable criticism when someone can say there are no candidates or there are no minority businesses available to do X, Y, and Z because of that community's attitudes or the types of industries that they choose to go into, right? Because someone could easily say uh, in the Hispanic community, they typically will open up restaurants and maybe, you know, soccer players or whatever stereotype that they, they can come up with in their mind and say, it's because of that community's attitudes and the things they choose to focus on that they're not part of this tech AI or, you know, they're losing out on these opportunities, much like can be said for other types of communities. How do you uh, assign, I'm just not blame, but responsibility or attitudes of a particular cultural group within this conversation? No, that's an interesting one because we actually have done a report on this. It's called the STEM Initiative Report, um, which came out, I believe, two years ago, 2018. Um, and in there, we, we addressed this very issue. Hmm. Um, actually, what we found is that Hispanics are just as likely as white Americans to major in STEM, 
but Ooh. there is what we call a leaky pipeline, both in education and within the workspace. So when they enter in the STEM field in education, they will start majoring in, in freshman year and somewhere along the line, they drop out. And then also those who made it through that process will go into STEM occupations and somewhere along the line, they'll leak out as well. Um, somewhere around mid-manager, uh, the mid-manager level is, is where we find is, is where it's happening the most. But, but, but why? So we interviewed a lot of um, employees in these spaces and found that they were facing a lot of stereotypes. They were facing a lot of um, both personal imposter syndrome where they were like, well, I don't belong here. This doesn't feel like something that is for me. Um, I'm not, I don't feel welcomed. And a lot of stereotypes from, from others. Um, and also the environment that uh, the tech industry has notoriously been known for has been counter to the familial environment of, of the Hispanic community. And I suspect, although I haven't done any research on it, mm. I suspect that other communities not being very well represented in the tech space have suffered as a result of this, these kinds of issues as well. Um, and so what needs to happen is there needs to be a change in the culture of tech um, to be more uh, inclusive and more welcoming to, um, to other groups. Now that's very hard to do because as we said in the beginning, the tech industry has made it to where it is today by being how it is. So how do you tell it, especially with a company that's starting up and fighting for its life to not, to be softer, to be kinder, to be more, more welcoming and inclusive when it has to grit down and fight every, every single day for its existence. This is a problem that, you know, it'll have to contend with as a, as an industry and as a, as a, uh, as a, as an institution for this, in this country and, and around the world. Yeah, I think it's a good point. In fact, it's a bit of a segue into politics, which I know both of us are, are pretty interested in um, outside of this. But uh, the fact that people will choose economics over the social aspect of it or over doing what's right and things like that, right? People will vote for this person because it aligns with my economic interest, regardless of what happens. Anyway, long story short, we've got some good news that it's, uh, you know, the political arena is changing a little bit. So I definitely want us to touch on that. But do you see anything changing just because an administration has changed or there's a new leader at the top? Do you, do you see any more opportunities, uh, change of tone? Do you think it actually makes a difference who's there or not? Or is it kind of like business as usual or economics trumps everything else? Okay, so just for context for our listeners, it is Saturday, November 7th, 2020. So um, just Google it if you want to know what happened today. But this is a very big day in politics. Saka is right. And there's, there's likely going to be a change in politics in the country. Now, the question that you're posing is a very important one. Does it matter? Um, does the person matter or is it, is it just the economy? Or as, um, as that famous 90 uh, political saying goes, it's the economy, stupid, right? It's, <laughs> it's the only thing that matters. Yeah. Well, yes, um, it, the economy and e economics really matters to us and uh, to everyday people and our everyday lives, because obviously we need we need uh, to have good economic sense and good economic health in our in our bank accounts in order to live. Um, but uh, I think it also matters who's who's up top. We, we tell this to companies as well. It matters who, who your CEO 
is it matters who your leadership is and it matters politically as well who the leadership is because and what they do especially because that's that that serves as an example we find that in companies where the ceo cares about diversity and inclusion puts it up first um and actively participates in diversity and inclusion efforts everyone down the line does as well the company does better um, whereas with companies where there isn't as much of that interaction, they're kind of behind the eight ball when it comes to these efforts and they have to catch up because they're trying to do it from the bottom up. But they don't. the problem with the bottom up is the bottom doesn't have the executive powers mm. to make the decisions that they need to make to change culture, whereas the person at the top can do that immediately by setting the tone. And so, yes, I think it matters very much. And we will, we will definitely see a difference between, you know, 2016 and 2021, how the top matters. <laughs> <laughs> Everything matters. The top matters. Black lives matter. Let's make a lot of fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we don't have uh, that much more time, but I'm sure people want to hear more about what you're doing. How can they reach out to you? How can they find out more about what you're doing? How can they access these opportunities that are now coming to the foray and forefront? Sure, sure. So um, I'm still at the Hispanic Association of Corporate Responsibility. Um, and what I do there is our annual survey. So, um, and it opens next January, uh, January 11th. So if you're a company that's listening and you're interested in participating, please reach out. I'm happy to have a phone call with you or your team to discuss the survey and how it can best serve you. It's totally free to take the survey. There's no charge. Um, and everything that comes along with participation in the survey, including um, a, a personalized report for your company and a one hour phone call with us to dissect your results is free as well. Um, so please reach out to me at elopez at hacr.org for more information on that. Um, and if you're interested in reaching out to me um, about anything that I do uh, outside of uh, Hacer and, and with my business and, and, and with other uh, my other efforts, uh, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm at Eric underscore Lopez um, on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you, Saka. Thank you.